you know, there were Russian MiGs going overhead. There's air sirens going off all the time. There was multiple times where there was miles long convoys of troops moving in with us. You know, it's always a bad sign when they're going the same direction you are. Ukraine's people are in trouble. So are their animals. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetEx Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today I talk to Dr. Krista Magnifico, practice owner, writer, and return guest to this podcast. Krista has recently returned from a trip overseas to Ukraine to help that opened her eyes, hurt her heart, and changed her views a bit on what she's trying to do for people and pets back home. So let's find out why and why now. Why in your life at the time you did, why did you decide you needed to pack up and head to Ukraine? And how long were you planning to be there? And is that how long you went there? How did your trip start? It started with me rekindling a friendship with my best friend in high school who happened to be in New York City the same time that I was in New York City. She has a twin. So it was the three of us for all four years of high school. And I was talking about Ukraine and she said my sister, who's a year older than her, really wanted to go. She had taken a leave of absence. She really wanted to go to Ukraine. And would the two of us be interested in going together? And I said, absolutely. I would love to go with somebody. I'd love to have someone to share this trip with. My husband had just had his hip replaced, so he wasn't going to be able to go with me. (laughs) And we just started kind of looking into all of the options and possibilities of where we would go, what we would do, and who we would kind of partner up with. So I used up all of my six degrees of separation in the veterinary field. (laughs) I literally contacted everybody that I knew and said, you know, what do you think? Do you know of anybody? And my goal was from the onset, I wanted to go to either Poland or Romania. I wanted to be the veterinarian for these animals leaving so that the veterinarian who is trying to keep their practice afloat can work on their patients while I do all the pro bono stuff. So I could sort of, you know, be under the umbrella of somebody who had the tools, the resources, the hospital, the intent to help out, but doesn't have, you know, a clone of themselves. So that was really my goal. And that got me nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so you did six degrees of separation and the answer was you nothing. went six degrees at nothing. Okay. Yes. So I reached out to Marty Becker. I have a very good friend who's in, in International Fund for Animal Welfare. They were over on the ground in Poland. I reached out to all of them and they pretty much all said consistently, that if you went to Poland, it was much safer and much better organized, but you really couldn't do anything. Poland was being very strict as to what you could do. So you were essentially going to either be kind of a vet tech or you were going to be doing paperwork. Romania, everyone told me, had much looser restrictions and you could actually go over and do something. So I sort of, through all of this, I would kind of come home, tell my husband, well, here's what I found out today. Here's what I think. And he would just say, just stay in a NATO country, wherever you go, as long as it's a NATO country, we don't have to discuss what you're doing. You know, I'll let you run with this for as long as you want to. Yeah. And then my friend who I was going with, she found Breaking the Chains and she contacted them and they were, you know, one of the few people who replied and 
you know, and said, here's what we're doing. Here's what we need. Here's how you can help. And, and we sort of went with that group. So a lot of it was her. She wanted to go for three weeks. I wanted to go for two weeks. So we settled on three weeks. She wanted to go in and just help the animals. She's a human ER nurse. Uh So she's been an ER nurse for 30 years and she was going to help kind of maintain the human support. So all of the volunteers that are there and I was going to go and head up the animal side. So when I came back to my husband and said, here's what I'm thinking about doing, he tried to strongly discourage me, but I ended up agreeing to. Wait, can I ask? Because it sounds like he sort of said, he's kind of had this rule. Look, as long as you go to a place that's governed by a rule that if Russia invades, then the force of the Western world will defend Mm -hmm. you in that country. But did that, did it get closer or did the plan change slightly? Why was he like, now I want to try to talk you out of this. So the plan really changed because I couldn't find anyone that would let me go and actually practice medicine. I just sort of felt like if I'm going to, you know, travel all the way over there, if I'm going to, if the goal is to really help these animals, I don't know if it's going to meet my expectations. If I just go over and do, I mean, essentially they were sort of health certificates that you're doing under the purview of another veterinarian, either in who was Romanian or who was, who was from Poland. And I didn't really understand what that was. And until I left Ukraine and until I entered Romania, I didn't understand what I would have done because when I left Ukraine and entered Romania, there is no kidding. It looks like so I've run a marathon at the yeah. end of these big giant marathons. There was this like ticker tape parade of tents and buses and units that just kind of greet you once you cross the border. And it is in every single facet and flavor. And that's where I would have been stationed. I would have been at the border on the Romanian side with the, I think Jehovah's witnesses and Romanic Catholics mm-hmm. who like welcome you into the country and offer you snacks and blanket. So what was there something about the, I could see how that might be unappealing. Is there, what about it? Why did a part of you want to be, if I'm going to go do this, I want to go do the thing that really helps at the real crisis point, not the Mm -hmm. kind of gathered up Mm -hmm. institutional uh, bureaucratic Mm -hmm. thing that is beautiful. They got all the resources. All you have Mm -hmm. to do is move into this. If you can make it to the safer country, we Mm -hmm. will absorb you into the system we've got, but you wanted to go into the place. What about the place of the people who haven't gotten out? Why did you want to do that? Because I really felt like if the goal was to provide a meaningful purpose-driven actionable, you know, quest, then I probably needed to think about what my comfort zone was and whether or not I would really, you know, come back and feel like I met the the goals of the whole adventure. You had expectations going in. What were your expectations before you landed? And then what was it like when you actually met the people working with the animals and then finally started working with the animals? So here's how the conversations with breaking the chains went. Okay. <laughs> we are building shelters in Romania. They are nowhere near completion. But our long-term goal is to be moving some of these animals out into the shelters in Romania. So you could go to Romania and you could pitch a, a shovel or a hammer. But that's not really where you're needed. If you're coming over as a veterinarian, that's not really where we need you. We have a compound about five hours into Ukraine. It's very safe. <laughs> and we are holding the animals that we are extracting there. And we need veterinary support for those animals that are extracted from all over the country and then brought to their compound. Okay. So we really need you there. And I said, okay, you've had other vets there. And they said, yes. And I said, can I talk to those other vets? And they said, we'll let you know. I, <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> I never did talk to any of those vets, which was, you know, probably my, you know, I, not my due diligence. I did talk to the people who were there. So there were a couple of women there who were taking care of the animals. And I did talk to them. And I got the same message from both of them. We feel very safe here. You're going to be here with us. The animals really need you. There's nobody here with any animal training outside of they've been volunteers for a long time. And we really need you here. Like that was the over, you know, the overarching kind of plea. And you didn't get, you know how sometimes you talk, I think you probably have a good, I don't know, I hate to use colorful language. Bullshit, yeah, bullshit yeah. radar yeah. about people, yeah. whether somebody makes you comfortable or uncomfortable. It sounds like even though you didn't get to talk to any veterinarians, talking to the people who were running the organization and talking to the people boots on the ground, you didn't feel like, oh, these people don't feel like wackadoos and this feels like a real thing and I'm not walking into some bizarre thing. I did tell everybody in my inner circle, I was like, the minute I don't feel safe, I, yeah. I can't, I have no idea what this is going to look like or feel like. The minute I don't feel like this is outside of my comfort zone or, you know, I don't feel safe with the people that I'm with and I don't know these people, I'm out. And I knew that there had other been other people who had gone there, decided that that was their reality and left pretty quickly. And I also, I also am very lucky in that I, between my husband's career and my career, I do have some somebody within a couple degrees of separation who is stationed in Poland, stationed in Romania. And I do have a friend who's working on training some of the Ukrainian soldiers who was in and out of Ukraine. So I did know that I did have some people I could contact if, if I felt like I had to leave pretty quickly. Got it. Okay. So you talked to them and you thought, oh, this is doable. So then what was it when you got the, either when you arrived or when you went your hours from the airport to wherever the location was? Mm -hmm. What was that like? So the first part of this journey that was a little difficult was I kept saying to them, what do you really need? Like, what do you need me to bring? What do you really need? Right. I don't, you know, what does your facility look like? You know, I'm not going into a veterinary hospital that has X, I assume has X, Y, and Z. And they just kept saying to me, we really need preventatives. Preventatives is the thing, the most important thing. Okay. There's a really terrible tick problem. You know, that's what we need. So I reached out to my vendors here and thankfully I spent a lot of money with them. <laughs> and and they gave me I got probably a thousand doses of heartworm and flea and tick. Okay. So so a thousand doses looks like four refrigerators. And I'm thinking, <laughs> okay. and I'm thinking, how in the hell am I going to get this into the country? Yeah. So I spent about two days on a lot of coffee taking apart all those individual doses to put them in a suitcase, and I still had three case suitcases which weighed forty nine point nine pounds each. And I thought, I look like a drug dealer. I am going <laughs> I am going to get to the airport in Washington, DC, and I am immediately gonna get turned around. They are gonna look at me and they're right. gonna say, what the hell do I really believe? Is her story really plausible? How do I not get my bags checked? So I called one of my other friends who actually works for movie stars and political figures in getting them in and out of their private jets at Dulles. <laughs> And he got me a VIP pass at Dulles Airport to get from, they met me at the front door, they took me in my bags through all these little back alleys and got me on the plane. And I, I owe him a kidney probably. So that was how I got to the airport. So I, I got all of my stuff on the airplane. They assured me it would all land in Romania. We got to Romania and I had three suitcases of all the stuff. 
They also told me that what they really needed was they wanted to start spaying and neutering, so, but they didn't have any isofluorine. And someone had donated a whole surgical truck for them, mm -hmm. <laughs> to them, but they needed isofluorine. And I'm thinking, oh my God, am I flying to Ukraine? Am I flying to a war to do spay and neuters? This just doesn't seem to be consistent. Like I, they're extracting animals who have been bombed and, right. you know, shelled and, and I'm spaying and neutering them. Like, surely there must be some mistake. <laughs> I mean, basic wound care I could see, but turns out they really do need someone to spay and neuter because they can't get these animals out of Ukraine now. So that really is the dilemma. But I brought all the, the drugs over. I landed in Romania. They sent someone to come get us. So somebody there's a small group of people who are the core people. And then there's a small group of these rotating volunteers mm -hmm. and they send someone to come get us. And our, we at that point had four of large bags of luggage cause she brought one and they pick us up at the airport and we start driving. It's five hours from the airport to the border. Okay. And then there's six hours into Ukraine. So we're looking at a little, okay. yeah, there's a lot of driving involved in this trip. He picks us up and he's been there for three days. He's an American. He's from Tucson, Arizona. And he starts telling us about what he's seen in the last three days, which includes landmines, Russian MIGs, flat gear. You have to have humanitarian badges posted everywhere. The fact that they're always taking your passports and your records. The fact that there are sirens that go off all the time, which means something has left Russian airspace and entered Ukraine. And I'm thinking, oh God, this is a lot already. You get there and then he starts sort of unloading. Did it feel yeah. like you need to know all this stuff or did it feel like I've been experiencing this stuff now and I need to vent about how crazy it is? No, it felt like, oh my God, I'm here with my friend and she had already tried to bail out. So she planned, she really wanted to go with this group into Ukraine, okay. but she had bailed out three times before we got on the plane. And I was a little shocked that she showed up at the airport in Dulles. <laughs> and we get in this van and he starts talking and oh, I'm no. thinking, oh yeah. God. And and 45 minutes into driving from the airport, she turns around, she goes, I need to go back. <laughs> I said, oh my God. It was now like one o'clock in the morning and we had been up for two days because it's two days of traveling. The first place we were supposed to meet the group was right on the border. So right inside Ukraine, right on the border. So I said, we, we need to get to this hotel. We need to get some sleep. We've been up for two days. We need to not make a decision at this point. And we're still, we're still in Romania. You know, right. you can't, well, I didn't think we could ditch in Romania, but turns out you can. And the next morning I had to help, the, I was slated to help them remove a, a grizzly bear, five-year-old grizzly bear who probably weighed 3,000 pounds and a wolf. So they were expecting me at six o'clock in the morning. It's now one o'clock in the morning. We have five hours to drive to help them get these two animals out. And she's saying, turn around and drop me back off at the airport. We drove to the hotel, which is actually a resort hotel. And they had bought these two animals to put in as attractions for oh, the wow. guests. And, and I look at this grizzly bear who thankfully was a very docile, <laughs> very large grizzly bear and I meet this group for the first time and none of them have any animal experience other than what they've been doing for the last couple of months and I think oh god what am I in for they wanted me to dart the bear and dart the wolf to sedate them so that they could move them into a cage and I'm thinking have you ever sedated a grizzly bear because it's not so easy 
And I didn't really have that class in vet school. So I'm thinking, right. well, this is really going to surpass my expectations because I'm going to do some really cool shit and I am probably going to die by the hands <laughs> of a grizzly bear instead of the Russians. <laughs> and I was so tired and I was dealing with my friend who's now having a full on meltdown. And the, the grizzly bear and the wolf walked into their new cages very easily because I think they really wanted to get out of there. Oh, okay. and that was my my right. first you, shining you light. Have, you did have docile wild animals. They I were did. Used to this. Okay. A little bit of salmon, and I think the possible expectation of a different life, and that bear kind of walked in pretty easily. <laughs> Turns out, honey and salmon is the cure for every lonely grizzly bear. <laughs> and the wolf, who was just pacing back and forth, she was so sick and tired of her tiny little enclosure that she rather easily with very little coaxing walked into her new crate and they both were brought into Romania back into Romania for to be at a sanctuary so so I thought maybe there are some really happy endings that we can make happen here and I gotta get my friend out of here because she was really having a tough time but they were going back into Romania and they were going to the airport so it ended up being that she had a, a ride out before she really saw anything so that is a different thing. It reminds me, um, we alluded to last time in the first podcast we did together about the fact that you were in the Merchants Marine. Wait, so is it Merchant Marine, Merchant Marines, Merchants yeah. Marine? Merchant Marine. Singular. Mer okay. That is a different thing where you were all enlisted and you have orders that need mm -hmm. to be carried out. And mm -hmm. this is a very different thing where you all were leaving for a dangerous place, but you're all volunteers. And so did you feel desperately oh my goodness, I need to keep her here for any reason? Or you're like, no, 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 this is the right thing. If you want to bail after you've had some sleep or you've thought about it, if you want to bail, bail. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that you have to be very good at kind of understanding who's a liability and how you manage that. I mean, she had not budged an inch in the eight to 10 hours that you know it took us to travel and then get two hours of sleep. She was declining. And With, she's like, I'm very clear. This is not the responsible right thing for me. I can't do this. She was at panic attack mode. Okay. I think the only thing for me was, do I trust these people that I just met a couple hours ago to get her back? Do right. I trust that she's not going to further decline mentally where she can actually get home? So did you almost contemplate, I can't, was almost on the edge where I think I need to go back with her because I'm worried about what this would be like for her? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I felt very responsible for. And part of that was she had bailed three times before. And I said, if we get there and it, it doesn't feel right, we'll leave. You know, I was going to leave with her. I think I probably should have said that includes actually going into the country. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not just landing in Romania. <laughs> so you had that experience. It felt she leaves and you had this first good experience. Wow, this was easy. These animals are going to get, we were going to, we're going to transport them. They're out of my hands. You got that magical thing where I could help some animals and they're mm -hmm. off. It looks good. This is a, this looks like a positive outcome. Now, where does it go from there? So they leave to bring the wolf and the grizzly back into Romania. And okay. I go with the small group of people who have been there for a couple of months to go to the compound, which is about six hours into the country. So, okay. so I go there and everything is, the Russians blew out all the airports and they blew out most of the communication towers. So starting to drive in Ukraine, it really, I think probably I should start with the minute you get over the border, there is this palpable feeling of this veil of gloom and doom and fear and stress that just descends upon you. I don't know how it really happens, but 
everything really changes. The houses change, the colors change, the ability to do things change. Like it just, all of a sudden, you just feel like you're in a very different place where you have to be very careful about what you say, very careful about what you do, pre-plan everything. The gas stations, 50% of them are closed. The 50% that are open have one option of gas and that's it. There are trenches everywhere. There are armed barricades at every couple of miles. They ask for your passport. They stop you every time they ask for your credentials. They ask you questions. They scrutinize who you are. There's no bathrooms. There's no, nothing is open. There's no people outside walking around. I think twice I saw children playing and thought, oh my God, do their parents know where they are? You know, it just, everything changes. You become hyper acutely aware of the fact that you are in a very different place and you don't know how to navigate it. I think that's probably the best. And, and some of the, the rest of these guys had been there for months and they had picked up enough Ukrainian to kind of get through the borders. And most of the people that saw my American passport and their UK passport thought, thank God you're here and thank you for coming. And we're incredibly gracious and, and grateful, but, but every single aspect of, of life changes. So at that moment, the encounters with the people, whatever people you ran into, that was good, but there was just something about, I could, well, if they'd been there, just something about the way it looked, the way it sounded, something mm -hmm. about it created this overall sense. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you've been, so because of the Merchant Marine, I had been to a lot of places around the world. And one of the places that I sort of felt it reminded me of was if you go to Israel, there's a lot of kids, <laughs> young, young people walking around with heavy artillery and yep. bulletproof vests and they are everywhere you know so if you go into one of these places that do have a lot of unrest you sort of feel that but it was everywhere and they act casual so in the same way that yeah. these people who are under risk they of are death not casual. are very yeah. calm with you and talking to you about this i have the same thing those israelis walking around you see kids that look like they're 15 years old right. with a machine gun on their back but they're totally casual and everybody's cool about it right but yeah it's a it's a change yeah so the long drive in, and then once you get there, was it in any way how you imagined whatever the worst case or the best case scenario might have been for this large animal housing place? So the large animal housing place was really a cement block structure <laughs> with no light and no separation of spaces. Okay. So you would enter a big steel door. Literally, I think it was meant to be like a a warehouse or a garage or something. They had been there for about probably two and a half, almost three months by the time I got there. And they had made all these makeshift kennels out of chicken wire and four by fours. So you walked in the door and there's a pile of dog food that's a mountain high and a pile of donated stuff in garbage bags that I don't think anyone had gotten a chance to go through. And then there's all of these clearly newly erected kennels. Yeah. Housing dogs and cats. There's a lot of barking. And then there are some dogs who look like they've been there for a while. You know, so there's this real juxtaposition of the new dogs who are trying to figure out what's going on and the, the other dogs who have been there for a while and are just kind of laying quietly in the corner. And then, you know, there's some coughing and there's some clearly sick animals. And then you walk through that and there's literally a, a huge tarp suspended from the ceiling that designates the living space. Okay. And there's bunk beds and a makeshift kitchen that looks like it was erected from Coleman camping gear. There's no running water. There's a 
pup tent between the dogs and the living space, which has a bucket, which is your toilet. And I thought, oh my God, I thought a year, you know, 10 years at sea had reduced me. Right. And and all of those football games where you drink too much and then you have to find a porter potty. And and growing up in New Hampshire when my parents didn't buy a house that had plumbing, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, here I am. Um, so there was a little bit of, you know, adapting myself back to being in a a dorm, which I called a barracks, and everyone goes to the bathroom and kind of, you know, common spaces right next to each other. And so there was a lot of college flashbacks. And then there was some, you know, some kind of uh, understanding of how to keep myself clean amongst infectious disease in a place that doesn't have running water, never mind, you know, how, how long could I go without a shower? <laughs> so, so things change. So are you good at that with the years you spent at sea or have, did you get better? Was it a skill you built? I was talking to a guy uh, who was in the military last week and he talked about when you get into a bad situation, your brain, you have to yeah. do this so often. They force you to do this. You just compartmentalize. Here's the stuff I can affect. Here's the stuff I can't. Yeah. What's the plan? Yeah, exactly. I think for me initially, very initially it was, I have to use all of my skills of okay. being away from civilization and from a phone call that you can you know drop a coin to get the police here all of my time at sea all of my four years at the academy all of you know the rest of the i mean you know the surgeries that we go into where you open an animal up and you have no idea what you're about to find and you have to figure your way out all of those things kick in and for me the first 24 hours were i have to assess these people to figure out if i'm going to be okay here Okay. Um, I've lost my companion, my wingman, and the person that I was going to, we were going to lean on each other. And now I'm here by myself. I don't know any of these people. Do I trust that they have all of their marbles? I mean, I guess it's really that simple. Nobody goes into an active war zone if you have all your marbles. I mean, I think I probably had to remind myself that. I mean, even I'm here. So what's wrong with me? And... <laughs> And are they a little worse off than I am? Because literally my life is in their hands and I don't know them. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. If you remember any of the details, what happened in that 24 hours, however long you gave yourself to like, I need to, so before diagnosing any of the animals, you started, I'm going to look at the people and how mm -hmm. they're reacting to the animals mm -hmm. and how they're reacting to me and their behavior. Mm -hmm. What did you sort of figure out that kind of settled you in? I sort of figured out that I could trust my instincts. 
I was not worried at all about the animals. So the job I had come here to do, I was not worried about that at all. Okay. I can figure out, I can build thigh muscles to levitate over a bucket and go to the bathroom. I can figure that out. <laughs> I can manage all of the wipes that I brought to keep myself clean and disease free because we wash our hands between every single patient. So there is this, you know, uh, this overarching fear and, and there's nobody vaccinated in Ukraine. So, you know, do I have to worry about COVID on top of right. all of that? And how many of these players are actually here? Because there's probably 10 people and they're Every day it's a different mission. Every day it's people coming and going. How many of these people are here and going to be here tomorrow? How many of these people am I even going to be able to talk to long enough to get some understanding of what goes on with them? Yeah. People from all over the world. Most of them were UK. So, you know, it was me and the other American. The other American washed out 24 hours later. So the guy who picked us up <laughs> from Arizona, he left with my friend. So I'm thinking, okay, now I'm the only American. Everybody else is, you know, sort of knows each other and has been here. And yeah. and there were two women in the compound, and I just sort of spent my time with them, trying to understand them because the guys were going back and forth so frequently. And I threw everything into the animals. I did what I sort of do here, you know, here at home. I got to know the the two guys that were sort of our interpreters, so the two Ukrainian residents. I decided pretty early on that I really did trust them. And I trusted the two women that were in the compound with me. Uh -huh. And if I had to get out, I was, you know, one of those four people would, would help me. So once you trans, once you do figure out kind of where your spot is, it sounds like they're sending the guys or the guys are volunteering to go on these, these, these missions, transport runs everywhere. Yeah. And yeah. you, these two women, were they also the two women you talked to on the phone before? Were they the same women who'd been there before? Yes, okay. pretty much. Mm-hmm. So then when you switch to the animals, what is it? Is it sort of, what was the situation like? Is it the worst shelter you've in the poorest area with the most understaffed? What was it like when you finally sort of shifted your focus to, okay, what can I do for these animals? So the compound when I got there was really manageable. You know, the 20 dogs and the dozen cats were all in pretty good shape and they were manageable. So between the three women, the three of us and the animals that were there, I felt like, okay, this is manageable. We can get them outside for walks. We, I can assess them. I can, you know, manage them. Nobody seemed overtly sick. One dog was coughing and I, and I assumed it was probably heart disease and that's what it turned out to be. But there was nobody, you know, with clearly dying or an imminent danger. What I didn't realize was that they were going on all of these missions and they were bringing back, you know, armloads of animals. So, oh. so that's where it got really kind of hairy. They literally showed up one day with 30 puppies in a carrier. And I thought, oh my God, this is the beginning of the end. Like we cannot manage all these animals and now we can't manage infectious disease. And that is, that's what happened. So, you know, where, where things are very controlled here, Everything is just in degrees of badness there. There's nothing better. It's just degrees of badness. And you are constantly trying to assess, are they worse off here or better off with us? And if they come with us, what do we do with them then? And the floodgates closed while I was there. They wouldn't let any animals out. So now it just becomes an accumulation game that the medicine side of me knew it couldn't be managed. Were the animals that were there, were they all, you know, you talked about these chicken wire cages, were they all kept one to a cage? Did they really have enough cages to keep all these animals separate? They did when I got there initially. Okay. They, they didn't when I left. 
Okay. And that was part of the problem The you know, the logistics of everything are changing. So dynamically, you know, borders are opening and closing. They're letting people in and out with different parameters. They were letting, before I got there, they were letting a lot of animals transit out of Ukraine into shelters. And now all the shelters elsewhere are full. So okay. it's becoming this kind of backlog of, you know, problems that's constantly changing and constantly worsening. In the middle of my trip, and the reason that they told me they needed so many preventatives was they wanted to go to a shelter that they had been to previously called Droog, so it's D-R-O-O-G, that had 500 animals there. And they were very concerned about the conditions of the animals there and trying to help with food and medical care for all those primarily dogs. It's probably 450 dogs and 50 cats that were there. I'm curious about, you were surprised, like, what are we spaying and neutering for? So yeah. in their thinking, what were they spaying and neutering? Was it the worry that eventually at some point something may happen and these animals might get dispersed? No, the problem is that they're getting all these animals from all these different places. The country already doesn't do a lot of spaying and neutering. Okay. So they're literally getting animals that are pregnant. And how do you manage 30 puppies and then other animals that are about to have 30 more? Okay. And for reasons that I still don't quite understand, they're still working and living under the pre-existing conditions of Ukraine when it was a country, not at war. So they don't want to be spaying and neutering and vaccinating animals that they don't know if they are owned by somebody or they are theirs. Or I guess the law in Ukraine is that you can't vaccinate unless you're a Ukrainian veterinarian. Apparently you can spay and neuter, but you can't vaccinate. So they're not vaccinating. You can't microchip. So you can't keep track of these animals. Like it was the captain side of me. So the, the veterinarian in charge of my clinic and the veterinarian who used to be in charge of a ship just wanted to stand up in the middle every once in a while and scream orders. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of them. So in, a, in this moment of stress and anxiety and trauma, they're falling back on, well, what we know what we know are the old rules we had. And so yeah. in order to yeah. maintain some order, we're going to follow these old rules. Whereas yeah. you were like, somebody needs to make an executive decision yeah. about the fact that some of yeah. these rules need to go in the new conditions. Yeah. yeah. If the premise is we are at war and we are going to extract these animals under the most ridiculous circumstances, under the most horrific conditions, it is time to start changing some rules. And and we have no idea when these animals are leaving. The vaccines last for three weeks. You know, they have to be boosted again in three weeks. Why are we asking for permission? Like, why are we, we can explain it all later if there even is a later. Like, I, I just, I had a really tough time with that. And that was ultimately the, the reason that I left. Did you leave earlier than you thought you would? So we were supposed to stay for three weeks. Right. I went out a couple of times. So about a week well, about a weekend, we went to the shelter, and that was three days there. That was in Alexandria, which is, which is heading straight east. We were, they were making plans to go to the shelter, and I said, I need to know where the shelter is. And they sort of looked at me like, why do you need to know where it is? You're not driving. And I said, because I have a husband at home, and if I'm leaving this compound, I have to tell him where I'm going. And they sort of reluctantly gave me the coordinates, and I sent it to my husband, and he... He had a meltdown. He said, you are two hours away from the Russians. You are so close. You know, you are now going into an active military zone. You cannot go. And I thought, well, you know, I came to take care of these animals. How do I? So we're, I'm having this internal argument again right? with how much risk am I willing to assume? And am I doing what I came here to do? And 
I really, my husband didn't speak to me for the rest of the trip after I went to that shelter. <laughs> it was, he really had a tough time. And we went to that shelter. So I was gone there for three days. And, you know, there were Russian MIGs going overhead. There's air sirens going off all the time. There was multiple times where there was miles long convoys of troops moving in with us. You know, it's always a bad sign when they're going the same direction you are. Right. <laughs> and the trenches got more, um, more obvious, the barricades, the army bases, the people hiding in buses that had been turned over, the number of things that had been obviously recently blown up. You know, everything really got even more, got more intense. Um, there were landmine signs just about everywhere over there. So you cannot get out of your car. If you get out of the car and you have to go to the bathroom, you have to go to the bathroom in front of the car. You cannot go off of the road. You cannot wander anywhere. You, We stayed with people those nights and there's lights out at eight o'clock. You have to be quiet after nine o'clock. There's curfews. You know, they shut down the power. They shut down the water. I went out another time to go shopping. The banks were closed. The ATM machines, if there were 10 ATM machines, one had cash and there was a, a line of 75 people long, you know, the no gas, like it became increasingly obvious that things were, the noose was getting tighter. So that's ultimately, that and the animals was ultimately why I left. I didn't know if I could get a ride out later. In your situation in the first complex, so those animals that were coming, they're probably not doing sweeps for stray and feral animals are not trying to catch up. So are people at the border who don't have their leaving and they won't take their animals, they sort of have to leave their animals and these people mm -hmm. go pick them up or mm -hmm. are people in, in Ukraine, we have to go from X to Y, or I'm worried about my animal. Can I surrender it to you? Where were these mm -hmm. animals? Where were they grabbing them? It was everything. It was okay. everything in the spectrum. It was, we left our animal with this person. This person is now leaving. Can you take our pet? Okay. Um, it was, this place got bombed out. There was a dog left behind. Can you yeah. come get them? It was the zoo staff has been reduced to skeleton crew and they're running out of food. Can you come help us with food or taking care of the animals? Now it's being moved into getting the animals out because the food is getting harder. And, you know, it's just... Every day, it's one different disaster after another. It's from, you know, now that I'm back, I can say that the degree of difficulty in understanding which animals were which and what the story they come with is impossible. I don't know how many of these animals were owned by somebody and left. I don't know how many of these animals were strays and we assumed that someone left or, you know, it's a difficult country with respect to animals anyway. Add a war and it gets really confusing. What for you was, when did you decide, I think it's reached the point where it's enough's enough. And it was, was it mostly your own, you're thinking about, I'm trying to be responsible, my own safety, I can't cross this line. Or was it, I am, it's agonizing to be here trying to deal with what is basically, the place is going to flood with animals. I mean, I don't know what other, other mm -hmm. thing would happen. Mm -hmm. So it was definitely a couple things. It was one, you get to the point where you're so exhausted, you just almost can't function. And I think everybody who had been there for longer than a couple of weeks was at that place. Like you are literally, you don't know one day from the next, you don't know when a day starts and when a day ends. No one's eating anything consistently. Everybody is living on caffeine, nicotine, <laughs> you know, some sort of drug of choice. Yeah. The flood of need never dissipates. There's really never a break. And then there were a couple of you know instances. We were going to the shelter, so six hours into the active war zone, 
and they forgot to bring gas. And then we got a flat tire and we didn't have a spare tire and we didn't have a jack. And I'm thinking, I'm about to swear like you can't believe, like a sailor. I'm about to swear like a sailor. <laughs> I'm sitting in the back seat and I'm like, I'm swearing to myself and I'm thinking, for me to neuter a fucking cat, I have a goddamn checklist. I make sure there's ISO in the machine. I intubate all these animals. I'm, you know, I have a goddamn checklist. Not bringing gas when you already know there's no gas is pretty important. And then he remembered to pack us sandwiches and coffee, but we don't have gas. And I'm sort of feeling like, you know, there is, <laughs> some people have been here for too long and we've lost yep. all of our military training. Yep. And the safety of our people is not the most paramount thing. And part of that's exhaustion. You can't live on two hours of sleep day after day after day and not make a mistake. And one of those mistakes is going to be tragic. So that was part of it. I either thought I have to take command of everything here because, you know, I had a thousand doses of preventative. So I had everything to take care of these animals and I don't have the gas to get there. Like, I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to get stuck and found on the side of the road. So that you was did, one of the things. You did have situations of being in charge. Did you feel like I can't really step in because yeah. I don't know the culture? I don't have command oh. of the language. So I can't. Or did you eventually get frustrated or look at the situation with kind of open, clear eyes and say, I have to take charge and tell certain people what to do at certain times? So the first day that I got there with the grizzly and the wolf, I realized that the two guys that were, you know, the two commandos jumping in did not know yeah. what they were doing. And within okay. 30 minutes, I took command and I said, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to try until it doesn't work. If there's anybody else with more animal experience, everyone just shut up and listen to me. So I literally knew them for 30 minutes. Yeah. And it went very well. And I thought, you know, well, there you go. I'm, I'm not going to sit by and watch the animals get hurt. And they were really about to get tragically, I mean, terribly. You can't break a leg on a wild wolf and not expect that it's just not going to get put down. So I jumped in then. And then I got to the compound and there was some, you know, they were telling me I couldn't vaccinate. And I said, you realize you're just going to, you're just going to sit and watch all these animals get parvo or distemper or something. And half of them are going to die. You're okay with that. You would rather have permission from some person we'll never be able to find because we're in a war and no one's right. going to come help us. And they said, yes. And I just said, okay, so I don't, I don't have command of the animals here. Right. And you know, and disaster is going to hit. And then there was another veterinarian coming and she, the day she came, I left and I said, you know, I literally told her in passing, just brace yourself. Was there any way in which you afterward have tried? So I noticed, so I heard you were going and then I saw, you know, you tried to, I think you tried to set, put pictures up while you were there at one point yeah. and you did. And then I feel like the blogs that have come because you write a lot have been, you are still, in, it feels like you are still in a state of having, I have not fully processed. What was this? What did this mean? What was it supposed to mean? What was I supposed to learn from? I yeah. can feel things in the blogs that are reaching out. Where do you feel you are now having come, been in what feels a comfortable first world life as a professional mm -hmm. doctor and then going off to a place where everything is insane and terrible and then coming back here, what are your feelings about what's going on over there? And what are your feelings like when you sit in your own practice today now? I think I reinforced a couple of things that I already knew. So when we talked the last time and yeah. I, and I said all the reasons why I had to own my own practice, I think are all, <laughs> the, all still the same reasons why if I'm going to travel abroad, I need to have a little bit more control okay. <laughs> or a little bit different expectations. 
so that's part of it that reinforced that I was telling somebody yesterday, I will, I don't think that I'll ever be a place in my life again, where I have to beg for a ride from somebody because I don't have a car, hope that we have enough gas to get there and wonder if I have the right money so that if, you know, things go bad, I don't ever want to be in that position again, you know, and part of that was just making sure you're aligned with people that are all on the same page. So there's that. I absolutely have not processed everything. I have, I'm sure I have 500 videos that I haven't posted and a lot of pictures. When I was there, they didn't want me to post things because they didn't want me to give up our sure. location. Yep. So part of it was security reason. And part of it was there's just really almost no internet. Like it's very difficult to get internet. So communication is very difficult. And then, yeah, I haven't internally, there's still a lot of conflict as to what did I hope to get out of it? What do I hope to learn from it? And how do I move on? I'm, I'm still stuck there. I'm not upset about it and it's not going to send me into a depression, but I, I am sort of redefining the things that I can impact in a meaningful way and how I approach those. One of the first ones that jumped out at me, I think you probably, I would have asked you the same question. So you've been to Ukraine. So, well, I want to do something. What should I do? And the typical thing, of course, most of the institutions around the world, their typical answer when something terrible is happening somewhere else is, well, give it to the institution, give money. And I thought mm -hmm. it was interesting because one of the first things, one of the first pieces of advice that sort of tumbled out of you after this experience was you had this thing where you said, I'm not telling you to give money. I want you to go adopt animals. So mm -hmm. if you love animals and you're worried mm -hmm. about these animals in Ukraine, mm -hmm. well, kind of like, I don't know how to tell you how to help them because mm -hmm. I, that's complicated. Go take your kindness and love and express mm -hmm. it to the animals in your vicinity. Yep. I think that we are really good at the tear jerking, empathizing, right. compassion, compelling things. And I think what we're really bad about is understanding all of the many layers of the onion and how difficult it is to navigate them. You can't get anything into Ukraine right now. It's, you can't. They're at the border going in. It's about 20 miles, if not more now, of trucks just trying to get into the border. There's no airports. There's no fundamental infrastructure for moving goods outside of the trucks. You can't do ships anymore. Like, so you can't send food or send stuff and have it get there. It's just not going to get there. You know, with that, the complexities of animals coming and going in that country, it's not to be underestimated. There's infectious disease, there's rabies, there's other animals who are now at risk. So that's not going to happen. There are, you know, I don't know what the future holds as far as how this country is going to end up. I really, I really felt like Ukraine is never going to surrender. And Godspeed to them for that. And I really felt like Russia's never going to stop either. It's just this stalemate of atrocities after atrocities. And, and there's innocent beings stuck in the middle. And there's no way you can really influence that. You sort of have to accept that, even though it's impossible for most of us to comprehend. And take that internal angst and energy and put it towards something that you really can influence. And I just don't. I don't know how to put it any simpler. You know, there's there's only so much money that's going to fix a problem. So trying to figure out, I mean, you're even asking yourself, you know, so you felt called to go do it and you did it. And now you come back and I think you, what did that mean? Should I have gone and done that? And I think there's mm -hmm. probably you waffle between, there was a good thing that I tried to do and there were good mm -hmm. things I did while I was there. But also there's probably also that tendency to sadness about, well, I felt like I did nothing. So I felt like I did mm -hmm. nothing. So 
how do you feel about that right now and that balance between that was great to go do that and try to do that or drop in the bucket. Why did I bother? I don't know. How does it feel? Well, I feel guilty in that I couldn't, those animals that I was directly responsible for. And I absolutely feel that way. I feel like I was responsible for some of them. I took some of them out of that shelter that were imminently dying and brought them to the compound. I took some of those from the compound and helped the other, the girl that I left with, we brought them to Romania. So now there's, there's some of them sitting in Romania and I'm, I'm getting pretty desperate about getting them out. So that's my, my latest endeavor. I feel responsible to them. I feel responsible to the animals that I left at that shelter that I couldn't help. And I've stayed in contact with them and I'm not going to let that one go. I can totally see me going back there <laughs> one day when the dust has settled and trying to influence the fates of those animals that I just witnessed and touched for a brief second and broke over. I can see me going back to Romania and helping out there when there's a a little bit more organization and the borders open back up. I will never do that to my husband again. I think that's probably the biggest take home. I put him in a position that uh, he's a 30 year ex-military special forces, pretty badass. And I, I almost broke him and I feel really terrible about that. So I don't want to do that again. <laughs> and I have to sort of process the rest of it. I do feel that between COVID and losing my mom and losing my best friend, I pushed myself to a place that that none of them would have allowed me. And I'm a little comforted by that. I don't want to live a safe, cushy life with boundaries and borders and and second guesses. So I'm glad I went with respect to that. I'm glad I saw it. I'm glad I met those people. I'm glad that I came back more passionate about what I do here and and my ability to influence outcomes here when I couldn't do it there. Do the outcomes that you can influence because you're in direct control and in your a safer, more prosperous environment, do those feel bigger and do they warm your heart more? Or did you also struggle with like everything we're doing here sometimes feels small in my little, in my town, in my practice, in this mm -hmm. exam room, it feels small because I think about all the big need all the suffering everywhere, mm -hmm. all over the world with animals. And now I'm back in this little spot where it feels good to be, but. I think it's the opposite. I think part of me left because I wanted to do something bigger. I wanted to, I really felt like this was a, a historical moment of incredible magnitude. And I wanted to add my voice to it. Yeah. And now I feel the opposite. Now I feel like my little life here <laughs> is so <laughs> is so meaningful and I'm more dedicated to it. I think I've settled down a little bit. I've I've sort of come to terms that this is not a transient place, but this is really where I belong. The thing that trails out of Ukraine is the connections that you built and so you kind of it's almost like I imagine you in your brain deciding here are the people I'm responsible for. Here are the animals I'm responsible for. And then I will tenaciously cling to the people mm -hmm. I have decided to cling to. So I cannot cling to all the animals in Ukraine, but what about the ones that I, they were in front of me. And in some mm -hmm. way I decided to take responsibility for that animal. And then I can't, I'm not willing to let that go. Does I, was that different or does it feel like kind of exactly what you kind of do in your life leading up to that, where you're kind of deciding lock in on this thing, don't lock in on this thing? Yes and no. It's a matter of, of ownership. 
you know, there, there's here, every animal that comes to me has someone advocating for them. Maybe we're not always on the same page. Maybe we don't always see life the same way or understand the influences of medicine. I think that's a unique gift to veterinarians. We understand that a lot of things really can be fixed and you don't have to just disregard it based on an age or a presumptive condition or the lab work or whatever. There, there's nobody. There's really nobody. And that's what I think has impacted me so much and, and, you know, it fueled me so much. There's just, there's no consistency. And even with that said, in the country, there are street dogs who have dog houses and people feed them. You know, they are like the community owned pets and they take very good care of them. And, and I sort of looked at them and said, you know, we are taking these animals, putting them in cages where they have possibly no future. And they're probably better off on the street. That was the other thing that was really tough for me. You know, we don't have that problem here. There is no discussion about these animals are safer on the street, therefore we'll leave them there. And the community at large will be responsible for them. We collect them, we house them, we rehome them, and we try so diligently to get them a family. Like that's where everything ends for all of the pets here. You belong to somebody. Over there, it's so amorphous that it makes everything cloudy, which I think also makes it difficult for me to process. It's just, everything's muddy. If somebody has thought about, so they've heard about veterinarians going to Ukraine, or they've heard about other people helping out in Ukraine. If somebody says, you know, I'm inspired, I think I want to go over there. What would you look them in the eyes and say about, these are the things you have to be ready for. This is the thing you should Mm -hmm. ask yourself before you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had a couple of people that I've talked to about that already. And I think they just like me, I I sort of use the analogy. It's like all of us getting into vet school. Like you can't tell us no. For some reason, it's the same thing. Like we just, we get it in our little head and, you know, we foster this little nut into a pearl. And, you know, sometimes you just can't extract it. You know, all the people who told me don't go to vet school for all of the reasons I now know, you know, it's (laughs) sometimes you just can't talk somebody out of something. But you do have to understand there is a level of control that you are willingly surrendering and you have to be okay with that. I think a lot of us feel, and I'm going to use myself in the same, you know, you you feel lost at different times in your life where you're trying to redefine what that what that passion or that purpose is. And sometimes you need a smack in the face or you need a very different reality to to get you refocused and recentered. Yeah. But you have to be willing to give up everything. And if you don't understand the inherent danger of going to a place like that and what that might cost you, the borders can close at any moment. You can get captured by somebody at any time and it doesn't matter what your damn passport says. And there's nobody that's going to come in and get you. And I had to have discussions with very good friends who really didn't want me to go. And some of them were bold enough to say, okay, you get over there, you get in trouble. Do you really think anyone's going to come and get you? And I said, I don't expect them and I don't want them to. I don't want someone to send their 18-year-old kid to come get my stupid ass out of Ukraine. (laughs) I don't. That's not fair. You know, that's a very different thing than I'm stuck in Mexico, you know? And I, I don't think a lot of people sort of understand that. And then... The other thing that you don't understand is you sort of get there and that reality becomes your day-to-day life and you almost can't get out of it. The people that are still there can't get out of it. You can't walk away. You either can't walk away because it's not finished. You can't walk away because you don't understand the life you left behind anymore and you don't identify it with, which is very much like going to sea. You know, you live two different lives and it's hard to change those hats so frequently. Um, So there's a group of people that will stay there and never leave there. And I don't know what that means for them because 
because there's just doesn't look like a clear happy ending. There's not an end. Read more about Dr. Magnifico's trip to Ukraine at kmdvm.blogspot.com. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. If you enjoyed it, and please say you did, it would be great if you could leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the Leaders Course, tell your friends and peers about the community. And until next time, just want you to know, I appreciate you.